Well, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Esther chapter 5. Esther 5, we're going to continue our series through the book of Esther entitled, The Presence of God in His Absence. So to catch us up where we're at, we're three-fourths of the way through this series today. And thus far, we have seen the book of Esther is unique among all the books of the Bible because it never mentions God by name. We don't see any reference to prayer, any sort of spiritual acknowledgement at all. Instead, we read the book of Esther, and there's a surprising absence of God in the book. The first week, we saw how God was working behind the scenes, that just because his word wasn't spoken doesn't mean he wasn't moving. And last week, we talked about how God used specific people at specific times, and how God desires to use you. So we've read about Esther, who is a Jewish woman. She was raised by her cousin and taken into the king's harem, where she was eventually promoted to be queen over all of Persia. Last week, we were introduced to the king's right-hand man, a man named Haman, who jealously ordered the execution of all Jewish people. The king approved of the edict, making it irreversible. And now Esther has nervously agreed to approach the king and ask permission to have the edict reversed. Really, as we closed last week, we found Esther and her cousin or adopted father, Mordecai, in hopeless situation. Have you ever found yourself in a no-win situation? Maybe it's when you were applying for a job and and they wanted job experience, but you needed experience so that you could get a job, so that when you applied for a job, you would have experience, and it just felt like it was impossible. I can remember when Hannah and I were looking at different churches to serve when we were younger, especially. We would look, and every church seemed to look for somebody who was in their 20s with 10 years of experience and a master's degree. I just needed to get my foot in the door somewhere. I just wanted to preach. Maybe it's when you're watching a sporting event against two teams you dislike. It's a no-win situation. Every time I watch Duke basketball against North Carolina basketball, I hope the game ends in a 0-0 tie. You find yourself in a situation where no good can come from either outcome. Or maybe it's a no-win situation with your wife when she looks at you and says, Have I put on a little weight? Let me tell you, I don't know the right way to answer that, but I know the wrong ways to answer that. It's a no-win situation. In life, we're often faced with these different situations that, that we don't see any positive outcome. Maybe it's a situation that you've put yourself in with poor decision-making, and now there seems to be no way out. It's hopeless. Or, or maybe life has just dealt you a, a difficult situation that, that no matter how hard you try to escape, you feel like you'll be stuck forever. We find ourselves in these situations with, with no possible good outcome, and it feels hopeless. Esther had agreed to approach the king, but there were two major hurdles that she had to overcome. The first is this. The king executed everyone who approached him without his calling. And so the fact that Esther would come before the king without him asking for her was almost certain death. 
the second hurdle is that even the king himself could not reverse the edict that was issued to execute the Jewish people. There was no possibility of reversal. Even if the king would allow Esther to come into his presence, he did not have the authority or the ability to overturn what had been decreed. Esther, Mordecai, and the Jewish people were in a helpless situation. We find ourselves asking the question again, where is God in all of this? You find yourself in your own hopeless situations in life, and you say, where is the fairness of God? Why is God allowing this to happen? And this morning, I want us to ask the question, where is God's justice? How is it that God can allow these helpless and hopeless situations to occur, especially to those who love and trust Him? We find ourselves asking, how can God possibly intervene when no intervention seems to give hope? Of course, as we've read the chapters this morning, we see the situation gets worse. I want to thank Heidi Brown, our missionary to Monterey, Mexico, for reading Esther 5, 6, and 7 for us. As we're reading it together, we we understand that Mordecai still refuses to bow down to Haman. Mordecai the Jew will not give honor and respect to the right-hand man of the king, Haman. And so Haman furiously constructs a 50-foot-tall execution device. And he is determined to ask the king's permission to hang Mordecai in Haman's front yard. He has the, the noose constructed and built, but God provides another twist. All throughout the book of Esther, we see God's hand moving in different circumstances. If you remember in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, Mordecai had revealed an assassination plot against King Ahasuerus. He had saved the king. But for some reason, we're not really told why, the the king was thankful but, but let it pass for a certain amount of time. Perhaps the king was too drunk, as we find him all throughout the book, to really understand what was going on. Perhaps he had other things on his mind. Perhaps he thought he had done enough just by saying thank you. It had been put in the past and was gone. But a restless night of sleep for the king leads to the king's recollection of Mordecai's heroic deed. As he tosses and turns, he has his officials read to him the historical account. He remembers how Mordecai saved him. And as he wakes up the next morning, Haman is ready to come and ask for Mordecai's execution. So we're wondering how this will all play out. The king says, who is outside? Bring him in to me. And as Haman enters, is called in, ready to ask for Mordecai's execution, the king butts in first. And he asks the question, What should be done to a man who the king honors? Tell you what, there's a lot of humorous situations in Scripture, but one of the the funniest pictures that we find is right here in the book of Esther. When Haman hears the question, what should be done to a man the king honors, Haman immediately assumes the king must want to honor me. 
I must be the one that the king wants to dote on. I must be special in his eyes. And so he gives him very specific details on how the the man the king honors should be paraded through the city square, should ride on a, a horse that the king has ridden on, should wear the king's robe, and should have a nobleman from the kingdom walk around shouting the praise of this man. Haman must be feeling pretty good about himself, waiting for the king to call a nobleman and put Haman on a horse and parade him around town. And yet, instead, we find the king pick Haman to be the nobleman to lead his enemy Mordecai on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming his praises. What irony we find as Mordecai is elevated and Haman is humiliated. There's great irony in this story. Haman assumes the king means him, and his honor is given to another. But it gets worse for Haman. Because later, Esther reveals the plot to the king to annihilate all of the Jews. And in that moment, she confesses and reveals her own nationality, that she is a Jew, and that her Her relationship to Mordecai means that he is a Jew and that an edict has been passed to eliminate the queen, the king's hero, and all of their people. And in a fit of rage, the king asks, who made this edict? Who presented this plan? To which Esther reveals it was none other than Haman. The king is extremely upset and angry and orders Haman to be executed. Not in any fashion, but to be executed on the very gallows he had constructed for Mordecai. Justice is served at the end of chapter 7. So we have to ask ourselves, what can we learn about God's justice from the book of Esther? I want you to write down three truths this morning. As you're taking notes, you can... You can pull up your bulletin online and you can see some blanks to fill in. You can tap on that and see our detailed notes as well. It'll pull up all of our scripture passages this morning. The first thing I want you to write down if you're taking notes is this. There is no correlation between earthly success and heavenly justification. Let me say that again. There is no correlation between earthly success and heavenly justification. What we find in our own experience is that bad things happen to good people and vice versa, good things often happen to bad people. We cannot look at earthly success as a barometer for whether or not God sees favor in an individual. We can use Haman as a prime example of this. In Haman chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, he is so upset over Mordecai's refusal to bow that he gives himself a pep talk. And in the midst of all of his friends, all of his family, all of his officials, he starts talking about how superior he is. Look at Esther 5, verse 11. He talks about the splendor of his riches. Look how wealthy I am. He talks about his promotions, how he has moved up. He talks about the honor he's received from the king. He mentions his advancements over his other officials and peers. He talks about the great number of servants 
he has. And then in verse 12, to cap it all off, he says, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. The wicked Haman, the man who obviously is the villain of the book of Esther, the one who we're waiting for justice to be served, is talking about how blessed he is. Look at all that I have. Look at my position, my power, my wealth. Look at me. I have it all. What we find is that earthly pleasures, earthly success does not equate to heavenly justification that God looks with approval on us. We play the blame game all the time. God, why don't I have when that person has? God, if I only could do, then I would be. God, why won't you give me what you gave to them? We start looking for all these excuses as to why God must have it out for us. Our earthly success or lack of success has no correlation to God's perfect justice. And that's because our earthly pleasures, our earthly success cannot ultimately satisfy us. For God's people, His desire is not only to bless, but to bless eternally with a blessing that is perfect and is fulfilling. And our earthly pleasures can never do that. Look at Haman's response in the very next verse. In Esther chapter 5, verse 13. After all of his successes are mentioned, he says, Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Imagine the right-hand man to the king of Persia, bragging about his wealth, his power, his promotions, his status, everything he has. He says, none of it satisfies me because someone else won't bow. Our earthly pleasures never fully satisfy us. The things we we acquire on earth, never fulfill us. Our pleasures cannot mean heavenly approval because our earthly pleasures never satisfy. Nothing we receive as reward on earth can satisfy us because, and write this down as your second truth, justice ultimately comes from God, not man. We're never satisfied with earthly pleasures because justice ultimately comes from God and not man. We notice in this particular passage that King Ahasuerus honors Mordecai. The king as a man honors Mordecai as another man. But if we take a deeper look, we have to ask ourselves the question, was it really the king who honored Mordecai or was it someone else? else. I asked myself, why was Mordecai at the gate when he overheard this assassination plot? Was he right place, right time? What was he even doing at the city gate? And what we find is he made it a daily habit to go to the city gate to check in on his adopted daughter, Esther. She had been taken into the king's harem, promoted as queen, and he wanted to check on her. 
And what we read in the first part of Esther is he made it a habit to stand at the city gate and inquire about Esther. He was there because of Esther's circumstance. God had moved Esther, and therefore Mordecai was where he was at. Then we ask ourselves the question, why, why did the king remember Mordecai after all this time? All this time has passed, and, and now the king decides to honor him at this particular moment? But we find the whole reason for his recalling this heroic event was because God gave the king a restless night of sleep. It was God who created the circumstance. Even Haman's arrogance was under God's sovereignty as he suggested the ironic reward for Mordecai. God is in control of every single circumstance. Mordecai is paraded through the city, not simply because King Ahasuerus wanted to elevate him, but because God is moving behind the scenes. God's justice comes through, even in the form of humans recognizing humans. Justice ultimately comes from God and not from man. How many coincidences have we seen in this book already? How many what-ifs have we encountered? If this would have been different or that would have been different, how many changes would we have seen if the slightest thing had, had been different? There are way too many coincidences. This restless night of sleep, this standing by the city gate, this arrogance of Haman, this queen being elevated, far too many coincidences for this to be anything other than God's hand moving. God is the one who enacts justice. And this is a theme all throughout Scripture. The justice of man is inadequate, but God's justice is perfect. That's why Paul can write in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. God is the one who is in control of justice. He's the one who is responsible for making things right and punishing that which is wrong. You see, man's justice is inadequate. It falls short. But God's justice is complete. Man's justice is biased. It's weighted towards our own gain. But God's justice is balanced and fair. It always does what is right. Man's justice makes errors in judgment, makes mistakes. Criminals get set free and innocent men go to jail. But God's justice is perfect. It always does what is right and fair. Because God is perfectly judging, you and I no longer have the responsibility to cast judgment ourselves. This is so key for us as we seek out justice in the world. Why are these things happening? God does not call us to put our own justice system in place. Well, if this person would do that and that person would do this, all would be right. No, God says, I'll take care of it. If you want to cast any judgment whatsoever, and by the way, Scripture calls us to judge things that are right. 
The judgment cannot come from your opinion or my opinion. The judgment must come from what God has revealed to us in His Word. God is the ultimate judge. Human beings can never adequately bring justice. Of course, that brings us to our third truth, our final truth, about the nature of God's justice and judgment. Write this down. God's justice requires perfection. God's justice requires perfection. I've asked many of you this over the years many times, but a trick question I love to present to people is this. Does God require you to be perfect to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Yes or no? The answer is a resounding yes. God requires perfection. Anything less would be unfair and unjust. And God is perfectly just. Because all of us sin, we all deserve God's punishment, which is death. Every single one of us. God is just and he will punish all sin with death. But God is also loving. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the the perfect human being, fully God, fully man, never sinning, not deserving of punishment. He sent him to earth to endure punishment on our behalf. Your sin was paid for. And in the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus traded your sin for his perfection. Now, in Christ, you stand before God. Even though you've sinned and fallen with the perfection of Christ on you. God's justice requires perfection and therefore it required a perfect sacrifice. So as we conclude this morning, more important than man's justice looking for fairness on earth. More important than man's justice is God's justice. That is, knowing we have eternal life through Christ. This morning, as we look at our world and ask, where's God's justice? Where is he fair? Let's remind ourselves that what we see on this earth is not a reflection of God's ultimate judgment. But our own hearts need the redemption the salvation and the justice of God to be applied. We need to trust Christ as our Savior and our Lord. Are you willing to look to God for His justice in your life today? Let's pray. Father, You are perfect and good in every way. Father, thank You for always being right. Thank You for Your justice, Your fairness, the fact that you will not allow sin to go unpunished. Lord, we rejoice when wicked men like Haman are brought to justice. Lord, we, we time and time again will not put ourselves in Mordecai's shoes when we are far more like Haman than Mordecai. Lord, each of us deserves death. Each of us has rebelled and broken your perfection. So this morning we ask for your justice And we ask for your justice to be poured out on Jesus Christ in our place. 
Lord, we ask that Jesus would forgive us from our sins and save us from our wrongdoing. And we pledge to lift him up as Lord and guide of our life, knowing he knows what's best. Lord, we willingly today trade our sinful lifestyle for your perfect will. Lord, we thank you for your justice. It's in your name we pray.